Well, hello, and welcome to another edition of the e-commerce evolution podcast. I'm your host, Brett Curry, CEO of OMG Commerce. And today we're talking about something a little bit different. And I am so glad that we are. I'll reveal that in just a second. This episode of the e-commerce evolution podcast is brought to you by OMG Commerce. And we are thrilled to underwrite this program and bring some amazing guests to you. I have a question for you. How is your YouTube game? Are you using YouTube to help scale your e-commerce business? Hopefully, you're using YouTube both as a remarketing vehicle and also for top of funnel growth. However, if you're like most e-commerce companies, then you're probably not fully leveraging YouTube. So I have two free resources for you. The first is a two-minute crash course on YouTube ads. I recorded this with the famous Ezra Firestone. So you can check that out by looking at the links in the show notes to this show. You can also Google Smart Marketer and Two Minute Crash Course, and you'll find the resource there. Also, we recorded a 90-minute webinar outlining exactly how we scale with YouTube. We talk about keys to a great YouTube ad. We talk about audience targeting. We talk about bidding, optimization, and much, much more. So I highly, highly recommend you check it out. You can also find that linked here in the show notes. It's also at the bottom of the two-minute crash course page. So check them out and start scaling with YouTube. And now, back to the show. My guest today is the Matt Clark. He's the chairman and co-founder of Amazing. Uh, he's been involved with the building of, and he's helped other companies build successful online businesses on Amazon and off Amazon for over 10 years, which in online years, that's like several decades, right? Uh, he also is, is behind, arguably, I would, I would think, the most successful online course ever, amazing selling machine. Uh, he's also, uh, he and his business partner and their company are behind the amazing event, SellerCon. And so with that, I am delighted to welcome to the show, Matt Clark. Matt, how's it going, man? Hey, Brad, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you carving the time out of your schedule. And I'm so excited about this topic. It was interesting. We, we did our, our prep call, which, which I usually do uh, prior to having someone record on the podcast. We're talking about all kinds of tactical, technical Amazon things and digging into, you know, here's, what, here's the trend we're seeing here and this is what's working there. And it's all good. Like there was some good stuff there for sure. But then we got into another topic and you said, you know, last time I spoke at, at SellerCon, I was talking about this topic and I thought, oh man, that's, that's it. Like that's where we should go with this. So we're talking today about how to make better decisions, right? So how to make better decisions. Certainly we'll, we'll flavor this for the e-com store owner, for the e-commerce business, but how to make better decisions. I personally love this topic. So I'm a CEO. We've got 36 team members now. We're scaling rapidly. This is the type of stuff that's really interesting. And I think whether you've got a team of one or a team of 100, or you're doing you know, several hundred thousand, or you're doing 20 million a year, you need to learn to make better decisions. And so I'm, I'm, just, I'm thrilled to dive into this, this topic. And so, but before we do that, we'd love to get your background, Matt. So how did you get started online? And then how did you get involved in, in Amazing? If you can kind of give the, you know, the 90 second version of that or so, that'd be awesome. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, yeah, I graduated college back in 2008 and, uh, you know, double majored in finance and entrepreneurship. And, you know, that was like when I kind of chose what I was going to do after college, it was 2007, you know, kind of before the whole uh, financial crisis. 
And I was like, you know what? I was like, yeah. So I was like, these these hedge fund managers, you know, I was like, they're the only people I see making a billion dollars a year in income. I don't mean like, you know, there's they're the owner of Microsoft and your stock goes up a billion dollars. I mean literally a billion dollars in income. And I was like, Jesus, I was like, that sounds like a good business to be in. So and I liked finance at the time. It found it super interesting, mentally sort of stimulating. And so I was like, look, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm going to go work for an investment bank for three to five years and then try to venture out on my own and, and start a hedge fund. And um, that was a game plan. I mean, I always knew I wanted to start and run a business. I just figured I'd cut my teeth in the corporate world for a few years, figure out what the heck I was doing and then jump in there. And then so 2008 hits, my start date at the investment bank gets pushed back three months because they're trying to figure out what the heck's going on in the economy. Yeah. But um, yeah, it does end up starting. So I ended up working at uh, Citigroup in energy trading in Houston which is kind of cool. Lots of tons of smart people from the best schools you can imagine. Um, and, and so I was there. And then I was just, uh, ended up just being miserable. I was like, I was just not built to work for somebody else. And if I look back at my job history, I never really liked working for anybody else. But I mean, I would consider myself like fairly motivated. So that wasn't necessarily the issue. And then so, um, yeah, after about seven months, I was like, you know what? Screw this. I was like, I'm not going to sit here and just kind of um, mess around and waste my time and, and kind of act like I'm working like I am right now uh, while I'm thinking about anything else other than in working. And so I decided to, to leave there and I was like, well, you know, I want to start a business, but I didn't really know what I was going to do. And then so my dad actually owned some medical clinics in Austin. Uh, I was in Houston at the time. So he was in Austin about three hours away. I was like, well, you know, I like marketing. I like finance. Maybe I can apply some of the stuff I've learned to help his kind of smaller business. Uh, where I can actually see the full picture of what's going on. So I uh, ended up moving to Austin and kind of did a little stuff with him for a couple months. But then while I was there, I noticed that there were some some super high-end, high-quality health supplements that were being sold through doctor's offices. I mean, they literally had these reps that would come in, you know, day after day, trying to pitch them on offering these different sort of high-end supplements to their patients. And that was kind of their way of distributing them. And so um, I uh, kind of fumbled my way through with the help of this one um, sort of agency guy, uh, kind of fumbled my way through building an e-commerce store and, and selling them online because nobody was selling those online at the time. And so I was kind of one of the first people to start selling those specific brands online. Uh, and, and it was, you know, a nightmare trying to figure all that stuff out on my own. I mean, this was about 10 years ago or so. Uh, today, some of those supplements are, are sort of more mainstream brands like you know, Zymogen and neuroscience and phone research and stuff like that, that if you're like super into health stuff, they're the ones people recommend because they are, they are good supplements. But I started selling them online and uh, really fumbled my way through it. was only doing my own stores at the time. This was before Amazon. Uh, but then through sort of like a chance encounter, I met this one guy at a pool one time because I was telling him, I was like, he was asking what I do for business. And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I sell all these different supplements online and I've got this one product that's just taken off. It was this weight loss supplement. Uh, and he was like, you know what? You know, I actually manufacture um, that kind of product, not that brand, but that kind of product. And he was like asking about margins and stuff. I think I was buying it for like 10 or $12 a bottle at the time. He's like, yeah, I can get you with your own label for like three bucks a bottle. Wow. I was like, man, this is going to completely change my margins. I don't have to deal with that brand telling me what price I can sell it at and stuff. And so um, through this weird encounter, I ended up getting into the private label game. And so started creating my own um, branded versions of some of these products. And then at the same time, you know, I started off like building my business with Google AdWords, went to all the seminars, you know, spent probably millions of dollars on Google AdWords. And then um, then SEO became a big thing and, and got a ton into SEO. But then I noticed 
even with, you know, back then, like exact match domains were a big way to, to sell products. Absolutely. And, yeah. And then Amazon was just cleaning up. Like it didn't matter what you were doing. Amazon was getting favored by Google. And I was like, well, I was like, I don't know how the heck this works, but I started poking around on Amazon and I was like, well, it seems like it's regular people selling on here. So I kind of, kind of figured that out. And then, um, at the time I had, you know, I was doing pretty much all drop shipping uh, aside from my private label stuff. And I had access to about 11,000 products that I sold on my e-commerce store. And I was so used to paying per click because of, you know, Google AdWords that I found out on Amazon that you could um, basically only have to pay when you make a sale for the most part, if you're, if you're doing drop shipping. And I was like, this is going to be fantastic. I was like, I'm just going to list all 11,000 of these products on Amazon. And then I'm only going to have to pay anything whenever I get a sale. This is going to be great. I'm going to make all kinds of money. And uh, so I had, you know, sort of six sort of uh, people in the Philippines, I believe, uh, work basically around the clock for six weeks, adding these 11,000 products to Amazon. And then uh, things got interesting. Uh, <laughs> the distributor kept telling me they were out of stock of different products. So I'd make wow. these, I'd sell these obscure supplements on Amazon and get sales. And then uh, the distributor would be like, oh, yeah, we don't have that. We, we have to replace it. And then another product would be like, oh, we don't have that one. Uh, we have to re replace it. And that's, that's not good when you're selling on Amazon. So it nearly killed the Amazon account. I had all kinds of violations and stuff. And then I was like, okay, this is not the model. So then I cut them all back to about 10 products. And that's where things really took off. I was still doing some drop shipping, doing more private labeling, and sort of really started figuring out how Amazon worked, how you rank products, how you get reviews. Because at the time, most people in e-commerce were just throwing products on Amazon as an afterthought. They didn't really do any optimization. Right, right. They just, they just kind of had the e-commerce store and they listed some products on Amazon and just let whatever happened, happen. Exactly. I was, I was taking it as an actual sales channel and doing all the optimization and, and running good marketing, like changing the main image to include a bonus and stuff like that that nobody was doing. And sort of it, it allowed me kind of to reverse engineer how Amazon ranks products and, and how it um, determines who's going to sell the most. And so that's, that's when things kind of took off. Um, then kind of, yeah, to make the long story short, ended up meeting my business partner, Jason, who'd been involved in creating courses and software and had a big blog and an email list of a couple hundred thousand people. And he was like, man, he's like, I think people would love to learn how you, how you're doing what you're doing on Amazon. Cause he came from affiliate marketing and that whole thing was kind of dying back then, at least the way he was doing it. And so he was looking for something new. And so I ended up creating a course, the first version of what later became amazing selling machine. It was, it was just me in the videos kind of sharing what I was doing, how I was doing it. And um, yeah, kind of the rest is history at that point. And we learned a ton, made a lot of mistakes, which I guess we're going to get into some of that today, uh, but ended up building an, an amazing community, a great business for ourselves and, and tons of success stories along the way. That's so cool. And so, so yeah, it was you and, and your partner, Jason Katzenbach and, and, and you, and so he was saying, Hey, affiliates kind of slowing down while you teach people Amazon. And so I, I'm assuming in the, in the beginning you, you had no, aspirations and no ideas that, Hey, as I'm sitting down to write this, you know, version one of what would become amazing selling machine that I'm about to write the most popular online marketing course ever. Uh, I'm sure that wasn't even a thought in your mind at the, at the time. Yeah, no, not at all. I was just, I was kind of following some people that, you know, like digital marketer and Ryan Dice that a lot of people are familiar with. And I was like, man, I was like Frank Kern and stuff. I was like, they, they send an email and they make like a hundred thousand yep. dollars. I was like, that sounds not like a bad position to be in. And so there was that piece. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It was Absolutely. You know, financially motivated to some extent, but I was also very frustrated through all the courses and education and stuff that I had been through because even, even when I was in college in the entrepreneurship program, it's like, 
everyone gave you a bunch of good information, but nobody laid out like a full step-by-step approach to getting the result. And so that was, I think, what really set us apart in the beginning. I had no idea how big this thing would become, but that was one of the things that I think really led to a lot of our customers' success um, because we built it from the beginning to not really be an educational program, but to be more of a implementation program. Like you watch a video, you take the steps. You watch a video, you take the steps and kind of laid out the whole thing start to finish. And so there is a lot of that motivation too outside of the financial piece. Yeah, I love it. And and I think a, a lot of that mindset that you use behind building that course is now what works on Amazon. So I want to kind of talk about that a little bit more before we dive into how to make better decisions and kind of how your business has evolved over time. But that focus on what's really needed right now. So as you looked at the market and you said, okay, I went through some of these other Amazon courses. They were not that helpful. I want an implementation guide. I want something that's super specific that someone can use to get started. Uh, it's interesting, uh, Ezra Firestone and I, we, we partnered on a project uh, called Smart Google Traffic. So it's a Google search shopping display and YouTube course. And then there's kind of a YouTube masterclass after it. But that, that was the mindset behind that as well. We're like, hey, I want this to be for someone who has the product, they've got the means, this is, a, this is a what you need to make this thing happen. And I, and I think if you start there, if, if you create a, a product like that, whether it's info or whether it's a physical product, then you're setting yourself up for good things. It's hard mm-hmm. to tell what's going to happen next, right? You, you, um, I remember uh, hearing a, a quote from uh, one of the Beatles, and, and I'm assuming it was uh, um, Paul McCartney, but it's like, hey, how, did you, how did you build a band like the Beatles? He's like, I don't know. Has, has anyone ever built a band? Like we, we just want to make great music. We just want to play and get together and make great music. And then you kind of uh, see what happens from there. And I'm, I'm not suggesting you don't have a plan or things like that. But you start with just really good quality music or good product or whatever. And then you uh, build from there. So uh, let, let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing on Amazon right now. So you've been in the game a long time. You've been teaching you know, thousands and thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people how to succeed in this mm-hmm. game. How have you th- have you seen things shift on Amazon? What does it take to succeed now that maybe wasn't as important, you know, five six years ago? Yeah. So when I started doing stuff on Amazon, I think around 2010 or so. Um, I mean, it was the wild west. I mean, you could do whatever you wanted. I was just playing around on there. I mean, you could literally go on your own listing and just like write a review if you wanted to. Um, and there was no restrictions. It didn't go away. So there's all kinds of weird stuff you could do back then. And then it slowly started shifting. And by the time we started teaching this stuff, uh, around 2012, uh, Amazon started locking down reviews a lot more. It was kind of their first thing. And so then you had to find out how do you get legitimate reviews, you know, started with friends and family, and then running massive discounts used to be a big thing. Uh, But there were still all kinds of tricky stuff you could do to rank products. And some of that stuff still works now. But I mean, over the years, Amazon has, has locked that stuff down more and more. And the last thing they want happening is some crappy product ranking at the top because somebody's manipulated the rankings. Um, that stuff is probably always going to happen. There's going to be people who are always spending so much of their time trying to figure out how to game the system. And then, then they get upset You know, when a year or two later, Amazon changes something. They're like, oh, my entire business got taken away. I don't know why my account got suspended. And they basically wasted two years of their life, in, in my opinion. Uh, so a lot of that stuff is, has changed quite a bit. And so what we started seeing is that okay, if, if you're going to take a long-term view of, of this business, which I believe you should for every business and probably your life in general, is, you know, what, what does Amazon ultimately want? I mean, we're not in the business. We're not owned by Amazon. We have 
very loose sort of relationship with Amazon. Uh, I mean, we're at the end of the day, we're trying to build our own businesses and we're trying to help our customers build their own brands. But if you're going to use Amazon as a sales channel, you kind of should think about what does Amazon want long term? What do their customers want long term? And how do you align with what with what uh, what you're doing with that? And so Amazon, at the end of the day, I mean, they want to make as much money as possible long term. And they have put a stake in the sand from the very beginning that they're going to do that by offering an incredible customer experience, great prices for customers, great products for customers, and a giant selection. And so if, if you're sitting there trying to game their rankings and stuff, not necessarily in alignment, but what is in alignment is having good, ideally unique if possible products. And so we started seeing happening was, and, and we didn't even invent this stuff ourselves. It was just sort of watching what our customers were doing because we have so many of them. We kind of get some interesting uh, observations. And, you know, one of the guys in particular, he had a, um, uh, he had a vegetable spiralizer product that he wanted to sell. And he was looking at the, uh, the products for sale on Amazon. He's like, yeah, this looks like a great opportunity. But then he wasn't happy with any of the current sort of options available. He ordered a bunch of samples and he's like, ah, these are all kind of junk. And so he actually spent six months developing his own brand new vegetable spiralizer. Uh, and he was a guy that came from like an options trading background. And so not a guy who's like a big cook or anything like that. He just kind of saw the opportunity. Right. And, um, and it was funny when he was telling me about this because he was doing about a million dollars a month. I think, I don't know if it was a year or two later, but he was doing about a million dollars a month, primarily with this one single product. He was just dominating. Awesome. And it's kind of funny. He was almost like a little uh, a bashful, I guess, when he was like telling me, he's like, yeah, you know, like, I didn't really follow what you all taught. He's like, I kind of just spent six months developing this product, but we're trying to tell people to get something live as fast as possible. And I'm like, hey, you know, you're doing fantastic. You know, you're doing a million dollars a month with this product. I was like, maybe we have something to learn from you. And so kept seeing more and more examples like that. And now I don't think most people, unless you really want to, have to go like the extreme route of completely custom prototyping and stuff. But long story short, you know, it, it's Amazon started favoring a lot more, even indirectly, you know, products that are better. You know, you start seeing it in, um, legitimate reviews sticking, you know, you started seeing it in, you know, getting more reviews and more referral sales and uh, a lot of other things. And so what, what started happening and what we started emphasizing more is have the best product available. And in most products coming from China, that may add an extra 10 cents or dollar to your cost to have a far better product. But for the longevity of your business, it's a heck of a lot better. So it kind of, to me, has shifted from this, how do we game the system model to, how do we create a really good product, do some really good marketing still, provide really good customer service? And as basic as that sounds, it tends to produce a lot better results, um, especially over the long term. I love it. And to me, that this was a healthy shift, a necessary shift. And now it's less about, I'm just going to capitalize on a couple of these tactics or or rather these these hacks and I'm just going to throw something up on Amazon it's going to sell well and then I'll kind of uh, iterate from there but but really leading with why should this product exist and and how do I make this product valuable and in a product where people actually want it and would want to buy it again if it's a consumable or want to tell a friend if it's not a consumable or you know and and how can I build it so that those reviews come naturally obviously you want to do some other things to push reviews but I think it's a healthy shift. So uh, just really quick before we kind of dive into our main topic for the day, what are some of the suggestions you guys make? What are some of the things that you recommend people go through to say, I need to do this to know how to make a product better or how to identify where there's a, a, a product that 
you know, it, it's kind of ripe for innovation and ripe for me to go, you know, make or source uh, a better product. What, what are some of the tips or suggestions there? Yeah, so I mean, the kind of holy grail is to look for products that are that are selling really well, uh, but have bad reviews. You know, to me, to me, that tells me that people are kind of putting up with bad options right now. And so if you look at a product that's selling, you know, 100 grand a month, but the average reviews across all the people who are doing reasonably well is maybe like three and a half stars or four stars, there's some interesting opportunities for improvement. Now, some products may, people may never be happy with, like weight loss supplements and stuff like that. Right. People just have great expectations for it. But there's a lot of examples of, of other products that have bad reviews and are selling well that aren't supplements. And so if you start looking at those products, like start digging into the reviews is the easiest thing. Um, look at all the reviews, but I, I tend to find the most value in looking at reviews that are, you know, more like two, three stars. Because one star is just kind of people just ranting usually. But two, three stars, usually are people making like legitimate sort of uh, complaints about the product. Find out what people are not happy with. You know, figure out uh, whenever you start contacting suppliers, if you can address some of that stuff. Maybe they don't like the material or maybe the thing's falling apart or maybe it doesn't work for some specific use. Or uh, a good example, if you can find one, is one that just people are using it wrong. Um, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but I've seen some products that it just looked like there weren't good instructions with the product. Right, that's, right. that's a super easy problem to solve. Uh, and it's inexpensive to include a little instruction booklet or a little card that links them over to a video or something like that. And then what happens is, is even if your product is about the same as everyone else's, if you can get a few more positive reviews or even more importantly, avoid a few negative reviews over time, if you just sort of play the long game, then your review rating will be better than everyone else's and eventually your product will sell better. Um, so that's, that's a good kind of thing. And so, yeah, it's a matter of like to me looking into the reviews and then also uh, finding a supplier who you can work with to improve some things. And then once you actually get your product live, not sort of getting complacent, you know, still getting feedback from your customers, looking at your own reviews, looking at other reviews, and trying to improve your product with every inventory reorder. Um, I got that idea from this one guy I was talking to who's doing about $2 million a month on Amazon. And he didn't do any branding and stuff. He was very honest about that. But I was like, how did you achieve so much success? And um, he was like telling me about it. he had some umbrella that got featured on like Good Morning America or something like that, that he didn't even care about the branding. He just, his, his stance was that every single time he reordered, he improved something about the product. And so to me, that was a big eye opener and something I highly recommend people do, um, especially on Amazon. Yeah, because of the, the transparent nature of online shopping, because there are reviews, because feedback is is so quick and the market gets to the side whether your product is good is good or not now really building quality into the product is is also a function of marketing right that's a lot of what gives you longevity and so i love that approach you know we talk about in our agency this constant improvement mindset and uh, that definitely applies to the service world where you're looking at you know receiving feedback constantly looking at what are sticking points in our process that that cause for a less than amazing customer experience on the service side. On the product side, it's the same thing, right? How do we continually... And I love that that line of thinking. With each new reorder, how do we make this product better? And, and that just fuels uh, future growth. That's, that's so good. So good. Um, well, cool. So let, let's shift gears a little bit. So our topic is how to make better decisions. Let me just kind of preface this with why I'm so excited about this topic. And then and then I want to get into some of the whys. You know, why, why did you get so excited about this. I know you just did a big presentation at, at 
last year's SellerCon on this topic. But for me, as I look at the the agency world, so obviously run an agency, but then work with e-com businesses. As as I've you know been involved in my own business scaling and then seeing clients' businesses scale, it's so interesting how there are these these shifts where to get from one milestone to the next you can't do the the same things you did to get there, right? So in the agency world, like getting from zero to 1 million in fees, not necessarily revenue, but 1 million in fees, uh, a lot of times you just kind of scrap and work and and then just dig in and, and, you know, work long hours and you kind of get there. Getting from Mm. 1 million to 2 million, possibly you could do more of the same, but usually you're going to have to make some shifts along the way. You're going to have to bring in some operational operations. People are going to have to delegate. You're going to have to shift your thinking as an entrepreneur. To get from 2 million to 5 million again as an agency, again, that takes another pretty big shift. And then to get from 5 million to 10 million, that's a big, big shift on the agency world. That's a pretty large agency. That's in the top probably 1% of agencies, you know, in the, in the e-com space, some of the numbers are a little bit different, right? But there are still those milestones where getting to, you know, several million in, in annual sales is difficult, but then getting to where you're doing 1 million or 2 million a month, that's a little bit different. And then taking it in the next step, you know, again, causes you to have to shift in the way you're, you're operating. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've seen the need for this. Like how do I continually make better decisions at the stage that I'm, that I'm at? Uh, but why? Why did you choose this topic? Like, what what made you so passionate about learning how to make better decisions? Yeah, I mean, I think it was because of some like <laughs> uh, giant sort of terrible decisions that I made and sort of paid the price for some of that stuff. Um, to give you an example, uh, back in I think it was 2016 uh, at Amazing, you know, we've been cranking along, doing extremely well. We created this great sort of training course, and everything was blowing up. And we had tons of affiliates, lots of revenue, great profit, all that sort of good stuff. And then it was like, well. Oh, you know what, you know, I want to keep this thing growing even bigger. And I think it'd be great to, you know, our, our main thing was selling in a fairly expensive training, sort of comprehensive training program. But I was like, oh, if we want to become, you know, a billion dollar company, then I think we need to do something more mass market. And so I was like, well, what's what we really know well is education. And I think we know teaching people online business stuff pretty well. And so I was like, this is what we need to do. We need to create a low cost membership thing that has tons of courses, the best courses available and basically decided overnight to shift the entire business model. And we had spent, you know, two or three years ramping up our operations. You know, we had 65 employees, uh, full-time employees, you know, a lot of them sort of six-figure employees also. Right, right. And and a big office in Austin and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, this is going to be great. You know, I I can see if, if if we can sell this much of an expensive program, it's going to be easy to sell a ton of an inexpensive program. It's going to be a great deal for people. And it's going to be amazing. And so uh, we did this thing and then started finding out that uh, people just didn't want the offer. You know, people, it's it's not really what people wanted. People didn't want a thousand low quality training courses, uh, but it, it, you know, we took a long time to learn that lesson. So we just kept seeing, and we were always self-funded and we had lots of cash. And so we just kept seeing cash, you know, go down and down and down. And this thing just wasn't taking off, wasn't taking off, wasn't taking off ended up actually having to fire half of the company because uh, cash was just running out. Ended up actually becoming uh, within a week of insolvency. And basically, I, I've never really calculated the full number, but I'm pretty sure we burned through 2 to $3 million of our cash wow. uh, of doing this. And not to mention lost the potential additional cash generation from that time period. And there was that, and there was a couple other things along the way. At one point before all that, uh, we had hired like a full executive team who was working with our CMO. And then we decided, you know what? We really know the affiliate side. We know the uh, 
uh, email marketing side, direct marketing stuff. And, and we wanted to open up some more ad channels. So we decided to work with this one agency that probably works with Fortune 500 companies and designed this whole strategy based on radio and Pandora and basically committed ourselves to a million dollar ad spend with channels that we knew nothing about. Um, and then ended up basically getting to the point where we fired the CMO and then I was like, how do we get out of this ad spend? I was like, I don't think this is going to work. And they were like, well, you know, uh, based on all these commitments we've made to these other people, you're pretty much on the hook for a half a million dollars in ad spend. And I was like, well, crap. I was like, well, we might as well just let this thing ride because uh, it's either going to be we spend half a million dollars, but we get nothing or we spend a million dollars and at least we get to actually run the ads. And so I ended up running all that stuff and probably made about a quarter million dollars in revenue. So spend a million dollars to make a quarter million dollars in revenue. Uh, so there's more examples than you that. Don't, you don't have to be a finance major to know that that doesn't work long term, right? Like that's not, yeah. not a formula for success. Yeah. And so made some more kind of decisions like that. Those are probably two of the most extreme ones. And then I thought, you know, I'd read all the business books. We'd had a lot of success. I knew a lot about marketing and had some proven results. But then after, especially some reflection and stuff, and after these sort of terrible events, I started looking at that. I was like, man, these are terrible decisions. But at the time they felt completely right. Like I had all the sort of what I thought was logic to justify them. Um, and so then after a year or two after all that, I started thinking a lot about this. I was like, where the heck did I go wrong? Like, how did I ever think that was like a rational decision? So I started reading all these books and stuff about rational thinking, like predictably irrational and lots of other ones like that. Uh, looking into a lot of stuff that Warren Buffett and uh, his business partner, Charlie Munger talks about, uh, especially Charlie Munger talks a lot about this uh, these, guys, these guys are so smart. Like, I, I think we, yeah. uh, especially people that are, well, all of us, uh, you know, we we can get too focused on, I just want to learn from e-com people, or I just want to learn from, you know, the, the, the people that are crushing it on Amazon right now. And you should definitely do that. But don't forget some of these pioneers, some of these people that have been successful for decades. Don't discount their knowledge. Because uh, if you do, it's going to be painful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then so started looking to a lot of that stuff. And then, uh, got a lot more clarity about kind of where I went wrong and how I could have prevented a lot of that stuff from happening, you know, because and, and the thing was, it wasn't just like a unique issue for me. It's like, we all have these things and we can all see these examples, whether it's people making bad financial decisions or bad decisions about their health or not managing risk appropriately. And like, you know, pretty much every entrepreneur is guilty of a lot of these things. And so I started looking into a lot of this and, and really trying it out for myself and seeing if it would help. And that's kind of the journey I've been on for probably the past couple of years now. I love it. I love it. So a couple, couple of points that I'll make, and then I want to dig into some of these things like cognitive biases and some, some of the, the reasons why we're uh, irrational, irrational, or whatever, whatever the, the phrase was that you used there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think as entrepreneurs, we have this tendency to think, hey, I'm crushing it at this one thing. I'm crushing it with e-com at this level, my first product on Amazon was successful, or I'm really great at this thing with my agency. So we think, well, the next thing I'm going to be great at too, right? So, and I, and I think you kind of did this to a certain degree. We've been great at selling a, a high ticket course. We'll be even better at selling a low ticket course, mm -hmm. right? Or I, I'm great at providing Amazon services. Now I can just, I can, now I can just launch into Facebook services, right? Mm -hmm. And certainly that could be true, but your success at what you're doing now does not translate to immediate success in something else you do. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, if you've heard the, the, the phrase, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? We all say that. Mm -hmm. And I was reading recently uh, Creativity Inc. by Ed Katzmull, which is one of my all-time favorite books. But he talks about how ludicrous that, that statement is. Um, 
certainly it could apply to some things. Like, you know, I, I step out in front of a car and I get hit, right? Well, then, then, yeah, of course, now hindsight, I would know I'd not step out in front of the car. But for more complex decisions, our ability to, to process what happened in the past is often just as flawed as our ability to predict the future, right? So sometimes we look at it and we say, oh, well, the reason I was so successful at this is because I'm just a great teacher. And so now I can go and teach anything and it'll be successful too, where mm-hmm. we're, we're really forgetting some other very key um, ingredients like, does the market really want this new thing that I'm going to try to teach or going to try to offer, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, anyway, lots of really important points there. So uh, what, what were some of the things then that you learned? Like what were some of the, the keys that really opened your eyes to say, ah, okay, this is how, this is how I make better decisions? Yes, I mean, one of the things and one of the biggest ones a lot of people talk about is, is confirmation bias. So usually, uh, you know, if we have something we want to do, whether it's I want to start this new business or in the context of e-commerce, I want to launch this new product or jump on this new channel, uh, that kind of thing, you know, we... we think we're sort of making a, good, a rational decision. And we're like, you know what? Look, I'm a smart person. I don't want to make a bad decision. So I'm going to go quote unquote research and to find out what the truth is. But in that whole time period, you're only just looking for evidence to kind of confirm what yes. you already want to do. Because yes. you've already set your mind that I want to do this thing. So I'm just going to look for evidence to kind of confirm that. Whereas like, if you really step back, I mean, what you really want is to make a good decision and go down to a profitable, uh, profitable path you don't want to be right just because you spent five minutes and made up a decision about something. Uh, so knowing that you're likely going to be looking for information to kind of confirm what you already believe, is kind of puts you on guard to, you're never going to completely under, overcome a lot of these things, but at least puts you on guard and helps you try to at least find sort of information that will go against what you already believe and force you to kind of look at the other side. You know, we've, I've seen a lot in a lot of different businesses, you know, if, if like you, you're in the services business, somebody else may be in the product business, we're kind of in the education business. And if you talk with any one of us, we're kind of looking at the other person like, hey, that's a great business. I mean, service business, nice. They pay you month after month. You can bill them a bunch of money. Somebody in the product business is like, oh my God, fantastic. Like you don't have to deal with clients, et cetera, et cetera. Somebody <laughs> in the education business, you're like, man. Grass is like, always greener. It's, oh, that, that business model over there is going to be so much easier than what I'm doing right now. Yeah. It's like, oh, you just create a course and like everyone buys it and your life is great. Uh, But if you talk to anybody actually in the weeds, like there's always more truth to it than that. Um, So yeah, that's, that's a big one is, is confirmation bias and actually trying to find the truth. Um, So another thing is, well, just, just to kind of, to, to riff on that a little bit uh, on that specific topic was reading about Steve Jobs and actually another book that I'll I'll recommend is called um, Radical Candor. And phenomenal book, but but in in the book to talk about Steve Jobs and kind of the way he operated, and 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 one of the the I don't remember this guy's name, but he's been in Silicon Valley forever, and he was saying Steve Jobs always gets it right. He always gets it right. And and whoever he was talking to was like, well, wait a minute, you're saying that Steve Jobs is always right? How is that possible that he's always right? And he said, no, 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 he's not always right. He always gets it right. And so there's mm-hmm. there's this one story where. In an executive meeting, Steve Jobs had this idea, right? And one of his other executives pushed back on it and said, no, I don't, I don't think that's the way we should go. But this mm-hmm. other guy relented, right? And, and they, they ended up doing it Steve's way. And then yeah. it ended up that, that this guy was right. And then the, the decision that Steve made was ultimately wrong. And Steve came after this guy. He's like, your job is to uh, convince me that I'm wrong, right? That's what I want. So he, like, he created this environment where he wanted people to disagree with him. He would fight back. So you had to really stand your ground and be aggressive if you disagreed. But he wanted that feedback. And he even said, I'm happy to make 
I'm happy to change my mind. I will change my mind. Um, but you got to convince me. And so, so having this mentality, I think, and you said something really important. I think we often as entrepreneurs, we want to be right, right? We have this need to feel smart or to feel like, man, I'm a successful entrepreneur. So I always want to be right. I think what's better is for yeah. you to say, I want to get it right. I want to make the right decision. And my first idea, my initial idea, may be complete garbage. I may be totally wrong, and I, but I want to know because it's, it's costly. I want someone to convince me. I want to know if I'm wrong. So yeah, that, that's where you're like, you're almost looking to poke holes in things, look, looking to find a way that your new idea could be destroyed rather than looking for confirmation bias. Yeah, and a lot of times it like kind of seems like hard work. It's like, well, you've got this idea. There's this thing you want to do and somebody's sitting there like poking holes in it and like, a lot of times you feel like you just want people to be like, yeah, this is going to be great. Go for it. But then if somebody else is poking holes in it, it kind of forces you to re-question things. Maybe you don't do it at all. Maybe you have to change a lot of things, do more work, do more research. And it kind of feels like a pain in the butt at the moment. But and you almost feel like it's wasting time or it's going to take more time. But over the long term, you're going to be far better off doing something that actually has a better chance of success because uh, that's going to save you a lot of time and, and hassle long term as opposed to just having I'm going to spend a little bit more effort reworking the idea up front. 100%. Saves so much time and so much pain in the long haul. Awesome. So, okay, eliminating confirmation bias, understanding confirmation bias. What, what's another tip for making better decisions? Yeah, so one of the things that's kind of a weird thing, especially for entrepreneurs, is I think to become an entrepreneur, you almost have to be uh, some level of an, an optimist. And so otherwise, you probably wouldn't get into it. Right. And so there's advantages to being an optimist. There's also disadvantages. And there's actually a couple of biases related to this, like optimism bias, positivity bias. Like for most of us, and I think especially probably entrepreneurs skew even more this direction, like we tend to think this is going to work out great. Like this is going to be fantastic. That's why I'm starting this business. That's why I'm launching this sales channel or this new product or this new brand or whatever. And that's totally cool. But you have to have a way to mitigate risk. And you know, some of the mistakes I make were just sort of, being blindly optimistic about how it's going to work out, but not protecting the downside at all. You know, I had the um, the uh, opportunity to interview Sarah Blakely at our at our last event. Oh, wow! And you know, she's the founder of Spanx, like yeah. youngest female billionaire ever. And a lot of people sort of make um, comparisons between her and Richard Branson. Even Richard Branson has made a comparison between him and her. And both of them, very interesting. They're they're kind of have this order or kind of known for being these massive risk takers and just kind of swinging for the fences. But both of them are incredible at mitigating risk also. You know, when she went and uh, basically, I think she was ours, she already had one or two kids and then she went and basically had a job and then launched her Spanx brand and was going over to Neiman Marcus and sort of uh, trying to get her products in these stores, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, like she didn't leave her job until she already had like had her product featured on Oprah. She was already in Neiman Marcus. And so she didn't have a ton of risk there. She had to put some extra time in and stuff. Uh, but it's not like she just sort of threw everything to the wind and blindly went in there and kind of put her whole family at risk. Same thing with Richard Branson. Like there's this whole story about him, like getting these new plans. I think they wouldn't put TVs in existing planes, but they would lease them whole new planes. And so he was kind of on the hook for a couple billion dollars, it seemed like with these new planes. But in reality, he had structured the deal so that if he could give them all back, if he wanted to, and his downside risk was only, you know, 10 or $20 million. Uh, versus a couple billion dollars it looked like. And so both of them are great at that. And so knowing that you're going to be wired to be more optimistic than maybe is, is reality is worth or more positive than sort of reality um, dictates, finding ways to mitigate the risk and like limit the downside. You know, what if this thing does go wrong? Like how can I prevent 
either that inevitability from happening or how can I reduce the risk if it does happen so that you kind of have this sort of asymmetric risk reward where it's like the potential reward is great, but the risk is as small as possible. And then at the end of the day, we're all just kind of placing bets. It's like if you, if you place enough of those bets, eventually something is going to work out. But where I think people go wrong and I've gone wrong myself is placing those bets where the downside is catastrophic. You may only get through one or two bets until you're completely out of business, your business is done, you're potentially bankrupt yourself. That's no way to sort of stack the odds in your favor. Absolutely. Um, I, I love this topic so much. Like the, the, the idea of mitigating risk, you, being an entrepreneur is risky, right? Running a business is risky. Most of them do not succeed. So there's inherent risk and, and that's where optimism is necessary. And you have to believe that, hey, I'm going to face these hard times and I'm going to succeed in the end. But that does not mean you, you throw all of your money blindly at what you feel like is just a good idea, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I love the concept. Uh, Jim Collins, one of my favorite authors, they were business speakers, talks about the idea of firing bullets and then cannonballs. And so it kind of gives the analogy of, hey, imagine you're you know, on a ship and, and you know, back in the old cannonball days, whatever. And so you, you see an enemy ship approaching. You only have enough gunpowder to fire one cannonball, right? So you, you, you think, oh, this is probably a good shot. I'll load up all, all of my gunpowder. I'll fire this cannonball. And you fire and you miss. Now you got nothing, right? You got nothing to do. But what if you take just a little bit of gunpowder and you fire a bullet and, and you miss? Like, okay, well, I miss. I'm going to recalibrate. Fire another bullet. Miss. Fire one more bullet. Ah, now I hit it. Now I've got the line of sight. Now I've got everything calibrated. Now I'm going to take what's left over and I'm going to fire the cannonball and it's going to be uh, a win. And I think that mentality of you're still optimistic, right? You're still optimistic that, hey, I'm going to succeed in this, but also having the humility to say, but I know a lot of my ideas are going to be wrong, right? Like a lot of what anybody tries is going to be wrong. So that idea of mitigating risk, um, you don't want to gamble with with everything you have without testing and, and mitigating the risk. So well, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good metaphor. And just to, just, for, just to make it a little less theoretical for people, you know, if, for example, related e-commerce, if you want to launch a new product, for example, or a new sales channel, it's like, you can just go all in and like, I'm going to, you know, I've got to say $2 million a year business. I'm going to spend a hundred grand on this new product or this new sales channel. That's one approach. Um, another approach is maybe start by surveying your customers, find out if they actually want this thing that you're offering Uh, For for example, if it's a new product and that's kind of phase one, phase two is like, well, how can I order the least amount of this product as possible? Maybe I do a pre-order campaign and if this pre-order campaign doesn't hit some success threshold, I just don't go through with this thing or allow people to put down a deposit or something like that. Then the next sort of way to sort of limit risk is like, okay, rather than putting a hundred grand into this product, is there some way I can maybe risk only $10,000? Uh, and, and just start there. Even if it's not a lot of inventory, even if it takes longer, or maybe the first inventory units aren't profitable or, or whatever it is, uh, try to find a way to sort of incrementally work your way towards what you want to do rather than just kind of swinging for the fences and hoping for the best. I mean, that advertising campaign we ran for a million dollars, I could have found out the same exact freaking answer for probably 20 grand. 20 grand worth of testing would have gotten me the same answer as the million dollars. It made no sense to risk that amount. And I think we should take that concept with basically any new thing that we're trying to do. I mean, like you said, a lot of stuff is not going to work out. And so knowing it's got a high likelihood of not working out, it's, it's um, not a good idea to make it a huge risk also. Yep, yep.
Absolutely. Uh, love that topic so much. Uh, all right. So we got, we've got confirmation bias, reducing that, eliminating that, understanding that. We got mitigating risks. How else? I think we've probably got time for one more. How else do we make better decisions? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's, there's one more sort of cognitive bias or cognitive error that, that we can talk about. And then I want to talk about sort of a, a tool that, that I've been using, actually got from Ray Dalio, the founder of you know, Bridgewater, biggest hedge fund in the world, that I think kind of wraps all this together. So um, one of the uh, sort of last things we can chat about is something called the Diderot effect. There's this whole story, I don't even know if it's 100% true or not, but anyways, it kind of makes a good point about this guy way back in the day. He was sort of, you know, was pretty poor, but he was a very smart guy. He wrote the encyclopedia of the time. And then some queen saw that, you know, he wrote this encyclopedia and kind of felt pity for him that he was broke. And so she ended up giving him sort of, I think the equivalent of like $50,000. And so he's like, okay, sweet. It's first time he's ever had money. And he sort of lived in a nice, um, you know, uh, pretty impoverished sort of little house. And so he decided, well, you know, I'm going to take some of this money, buy this super fancy robe. And so he buys this super fancy robe and then he sort of puts it in his house and then he's like, well, you know what? He's like, this robe doesn't look so good next to my crappy little couch and everything else I have in here. So he's, he upgrades his couch, he upgrades his dresser, and eventually he's broke again. And so it's called the Diderot effect. I think a lot of times we underestimate the second and kind of third order consequences of whatever it is that we're trying to do. So related to e-commerce, if you're jumping into a new brand, a new product, a new sales channel, a lot of times we're like, okay, I've got this one brand that's maybe doing, you know, let's go back to a couple million dollars a year and I figured out how this thing works. I'm going to do a second brand. This is going to be fantastic. I'm going to double my revenue, double my profits. It's going to be great. Same thing applies to a new product, a new sales channel, whatever. A lot of times we underestimate all the extra stuff that we have to do. That's, you know, probably more training for customer support. That's potentially a whole nother customer support team. That's, you know, a whole different um, set of social media accounts you have to manage. That's possibly different suppliers you have to deal with, you know, maybe different characteristics of that market that you have to deal with. And there's all these other things that come along that I think a lot of times we underestimate. And so it's thinking through, you know, the sort of, I think other people call it second and third order consequences. It's like, okay, if I do this, then what happens? And then, then what happens? And thinking through the full effects of the decisions you're making rather than just kind of the immediate potential gain, I think can make a huge difference in, in the decisions people make. I love it. And and just understanding that uh, I think one simple thing is to just err on the side of, hey, everything's going to probably cost more ultimately than what you think mm-hmm. it will initially. And and I think one of the th- one of the things to keep in mind is like none of this is about being fearful or being, you know, overly tense or like, oh, I just I can't I can't lose money. It's not about saying I can't lose money, right? You should be willing to do that. But it's kind of going back to the mitigating risk thing understand that, hey, we're going to, I'm perfectly happy to risk some money and it not work out if I can learn if it's going to advance things. And mm-hmm. then, hey, but they're also looking at this Diderot effect. Okay, what if I do start taking out more money? So now I've been maybe uh, not paying myself for the business for a long time because I want to just pour all the money back into, into marketing or product development or whatever. What if I start taking money out now? Okay, well, if you take money out now, what is that going to do next month? And or if I'm taking out money now because hey, I've, I've been waiting too long, I want to buy this nice car. Okay, what does that do down the road? And I'm not saying, uh, you know, don't you don't want to defer everything, right? You don't want to defer all of your happiness until you retire or something. I think that's a, a silly life choice. Mm-hmm. But still, understanding these second and third order consequences, I, I like it a lot. Uh, that, that's that's super good. And so I think you mentioned there's also a tool you have to kind of help help guide this. Yes, I mean there's a there's a great book that I've been meaning to reread because it's 
pretty dense for a business book, but it's called uh, Principles by Ray Dalio. And he's the, like I said, founder of the biggest hedge fund in the world, super smart guys, and a lot of thinking in this kind of stuff. And one of the things he talked about was uh, keeping a decision log. And so I think I've probably been doing this for, I don't know, at least a year and a half now. And just literally have a Google Doc that kind of, um, I don't remember where, I think I may have made up the outline myself, but I basically have a date, I have a description of kind of what the decision was. And then what, I, what I'm trying to accomplish with that, which is kind of what he advises, is write down all your assumptions, why you think this thing's going to happen, like what probability you think uh, that, that you're right. And then schedule some review times. I use Google Calendar for everything. So I literally put some dates in my calendar. You know, if it's a decision that I'll know the outcome in 30 days, maybe I'll put a review date in 30 days and maybe 60 days later just to see what happened. And um, depending on the, the timeline of the event, it just kind of dictates however many reminders you put in there. But the idea is to get smarter over time. And so get better at decision making. So write down what do you think is going to happen with this thing? And then go back and look and see if it actually happened, where you were wrong. And then maybe which one of these biases you kind of uh, sort of fell victim to. And I think this applies to personal decisions, but especially business decisions. If you're like, you know, especially something that may take a year to completely come to fruition, whether it's, you know, new sales channel, new product, completely new business, bringing on a new staff member, uh, write down all your assumptions about why the heck you did this thing in the first place. And then go back and review it and see if you're right, see if you're wrong, because over time it should lead to better, more realistic decision-making. Because I think a lot of times we just don't ever go back and look at this stuff. We think we're good at that, but I don't think we're actually good about that because we're too busy on the next thing and we've got a thousand things we have to do, but we're never actually getting any better at decision-making. So uh, to me, it's super important one. Other thing is just kind of, uh, rather than rattling off the whole thing myself, a book that I think kind of has a good decision-making framework is called Decisive. I don't think it's a particularly long book, uh, but it's a good one to check out if you want kind of like a checklist of, um, things you can follow to make better decisions. It talks about, you know, uh, thinking through things like what what would what would you advise a friend in the same situation? Like, what do you think you'll think oh, about okay. this? That's good, yeah, yeah. What do you think you'll think about this in ten minutes, ten months, ten years from now? Uh, what's the opportunity cost of this? Are there any other potential options you're not considering? It has a whole checklist of things like that. But bare minimum, you know, start tracking some of these big key life decisions. And go back and review and see if you were right, wrong, which doesn't really matter. It's just a matter of getting better over time at this so that you can hopefully, you know, achieve better results in whatever it is that you're after. Yeah, and, and maybe it's saying, hey, if this goes if this goes well, how will I feel about that? How, what, what will that result look like? If this goes poorly, how will I feel about that? And, and just saying that like, hey, maybe for this particular decision, if it goes well, I'll be sort of happy, but if it goes poorly, I'll be devastated. You know, like look, looking at things like that and to make you say, hey, this was not really worth even looking at or even, even doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I totally uh, think that it's worth, worth understanding that, hey, um, I'm not going to get this right all the time, right? So this is not about being perfect. It's not about being right. It's about eventually getting it right. And so that often me- means you're going to make bad decisions, right? We'll all make bad decisions, but if we're constantly learning from it, and seeing where do our biases creep up. And man, I love the idea of the decision log. That's so good. And I think that would help um, make hindsight a little clearer, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, if you're writing down ahead of time, this is why I'm hiring this person. These are the, sum- the assumptions I'm making now and why I'm making them. Then if you find out later you're wrong, you'll, be able to, you'll know what to go back to. That, hey, I trusted what they said in the interview too much. I didn't actually look at how they performed on things. I didn't give them a test. I didn't use a personality profile. I didn't talk to re- you know, references, whatever. Uh, looking at 
why you made those decisions so you can clearly understand uh, potentially what you got wrong or what you got right later. Um, Really cool. Man, this has been awesome. Uh, I, I sort of don't want to slow down. Like, I want to keep going. This is, this is so good, but we're, we're kind of up against time. Um, a couple of things. I know you guys are doing some awesome stuff at Amazing. Uh, so talk about, talk about some new stuff. Then I want to talk about some events as well. But what's yep. going on right now at Amazing? Yes. I mean, we still are pushing hard with our main training program, Amazing Selling Machine, which is really built for people that are um, early stage. You know, that you don't have a business. You're looking to start an e-commerce business. Uh, we kind of teach you everything from, you know, uh, how do you find a product to sell? How do you source it? How do you brand it? How do you market it with a heavy focus on Amazon as the primary sales channel? So we have uh, that going on. We keep updating it. We're about to be in our 11th uh, sort of iteration of that. 11th iteration. Congrats. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's awesome. That, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And then we also have um, a monthly membership called Seller Pro, which you can check out at amazing.com. And it's got a bunch of kind of a la carte smaller courses. It's kind of what we actually ended up morphing our membership into, which was just kind of teach every people teach people everything under the sun about business. And we really refined it when we realized that wasn't going to be the whole company. And so it's 100% focused on Amazon from people that have actually done what it is that they're teaching, which I found out, unfortunately, on some other platforms that I guess I don't really need to name the platforms, but some of the big course platforms out there, like some of these people have never done any of the stuff they're talking about. Right, right. Uh, they, probably, they probably just read some other things and now they're... Yeah, they... They took, they took a course on how to create courses and they're like, well, this seems like a good course to create. And they created yeah. a course. I'll, just, I'll Google some stuff. I'll regurgitate. Here you go. Amazon. Yeah. Course. Yeah. Crazy. Um, so yeah, we got that. And then, uh, yeah, super excited. We also have SellerCon. So we're going to have our, our next one in July of next year, 2020, actually back here in Austin, Texas. So that should be sweet. Um, it's kind of our big e-commerce event that focuses heavily on how to sell more specifically on Amazon. I mean, we always have... Cool speakers, you know, like you mentioned, Ezra Firestone, he spoke at our event a whole lot of times, you know, a lot of times talking about stuff that maybe a little bit outside of Amazon, but we try to focus it on Amazon because it's kind of our niche. Um, so yeah, a lot of that stuff going on um, and just kind of keep cranking along, trying to help as many people as possible build businesses. So good, man. So good. I think you guys are still the best. Uh, amazing selling machine, 11th edition. Check it out. Uh, also Seller Pro, heard a lot of good feedback about Seller Pro. So check that out. And then uh, I'm super pumped about SellerCon uh, this next year. And so we'll link to all of this in the show notes. You can also go to amazing.com, find all these details. Uh, any, anything else, Matt? Any ways that people can connect with you? Are you active on the socials at all? How can people uh, that say, man, I just want to learn more from Matt. How can they do that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm trying to be more active on, um, you know, specifically Instagram. It seems to have the best reach these days. And so my personal Instagram is just at uh, Matt Clark TX, as in Texas, because everything related to Matt Clark is taken because it's such a common name. Uh, so it's Matt Clark TX on Instagram. So I've been posting, you know, for example, you mentioned the uh, presentation I did at SellerCon. We've been chopping some of that up and posting little video clips about that there. So um, yeah, it's probably the best way. Great. Check him out on Instagram. Great follow. Highly recommend it. This presentation has been awesome. Matt Clark, ladies and gentlemen. Matt, man, thank you so much for the time. It's been a blast. We'll have to do it again. Yeah. Thank you, Brett. I really appreciate it. So hopefully everyone got some good stuff out about out of this and uh, hopefully uh, I get to see some of you all soon. Without a doubt. All right. Well, thanks again. Thanks to everybody that tuned in. Uh, hey, this was, this was great. I, I think if we can all challenge ourselves, make better decisions, 
your business will be better. You make better, more money. And also, I think, you know, stepping back, like your customers are going to be happier. Your, your employees are going to be happier. Like you make a, a better difference in the world when you, when you get better at these things. And so as always, we love your feedback. Let us know what you'd like to hear more of. We love show ideas. Uh, reach out to us. Also, if you find value from this show, share it. Share it with another entrepreneur. Share it with another e-com store owner. Um, we'd love to get the word out about this show. And if you feel inclined, we'd love that five-star review on iTunes. That also helps with the discoverability of this show. And so with that, until next time, thank you for listening. All right, it's a wrap. Anyway, that was fun. That was my At OMG Commerce, we accelerate growth for some of the most loved brands in e-commerce, like Boom, Native, True Earth, Overtone, and dozens more. If your Google and YouTube ad performance isn't where it should be, if you're struggling with Performance Max, or if you're not scaling like you'd like on Amazon, then we have two ways to help. One, we have amazing resources that are free for the taking, like our top YouTube ads guide with lots of examples, our PMAX checklist, or our Amazon DSP roadmap, plus many more. Or hit us up for a free strategy session. So go on over to omgcommerce.com and click on Let's Talk to request that free strategy session or click on Resources and Guides and pick the guide that's right for you. And now back to the show.